There is a pleasure boat in Mallorca which leaves Calabona for Calarachada twice a day during the season. And as it nears a peninsula called Costa de los Pinos, a guide with a megaphone points out the various luxurious houses. This is the house of Jackie Kennedy. Over there is the Villa von Franco. That one with the red roof is belonged to King Juan Carlos. And this one with the big pool and the white tower is the Villa of Harry Secombes. All together, English peoples shout, Allo, Harry! The passengers raucously obey. Right on cue, a short, stout man appears on his patio and waves a hand in greeting. Now, I have a confession to make. That villa is not mine. I should be so lucky. And the short, stout chap is an extremely wealthy Spanish businessman who is awakened every day from his siesta by this unaccountable shouting. And he's not waving, he's shaking his fist. Meanwhile, tucked away in the pines, I lie back in my rickety bamboo lounging chair and chuckle quietly to myself. More of Mallorca anon, but meanwhile... The lovely thing is that my profession as an entertainer allows me to travel as freely around the world as my passport photograph, which resembles a lunatic, will allow. In the process, I think I've picked up more bugs and viruses than most people. For example, I've had mumps in Manhattan, bronchitis in Brisbane, tracheitis in Tasmania, broken an arm in Bermuda, and had pneumonia in New Zealand. It only remains for me to leave my heart in San Francisco, and I'll have done the lot. I therefore feel fairly well qualified to sound off on the subject of being ill and convalescing abroad. I've also gleaned information on the different ways doctors behave. There was a time in Taormina, Sicily, when I was seized with a particularly nasty virus which had the proprietors of the hotel worried in case it was contagious. They went to great lengths to see that I was comfortable and that no visitors dropped in to see me, apart from my wife, of course whose meals they served at a table well away from the other guests. The doctor who came to look me over was a happy-go-lucky character who told jokes in bad English as he inserted a suppository. When I cried out rather sharply during the insertion, he clapped me on the backside in admiration. Topsy! You are tenor, eh, see? When I weakly admitted the fact, he launched into a full-throated rendering of O Sole Mio. It was a strange serenade, because I remained on my knees with my head on the pillow, as he had instructed. My wife had to thrust a handkerchief into her mouth to keep from laughing. He pocketed his fee with all the alacrity of a head waiter, kissed Myra's hand, and departed before I could turn over. It's an experience I shall never forget, and I shall never be allowed to do so, either. Nor shall I be allowed to forget my convalescence after the mumps episode. But I had mumps when I was a kid, I complained. You've got them again, laughed the doctor, adding knowingly, You'll have to be careful at your age. I was then 38 and still in my prime, comparatively speaking. Well, what, what do I have to do then? I queried querulously. Lie very still in bed. Don't move around too much. And when the swelling's gone down, take a holiday. Try a cruise. Finest thing in the world for a convalescent. Sea air and sunshine will do wonders for you. Three weeks later... I lay in my bunk aboard the SS Antilles as it fought a storm in the Bay of Biscay. The rain streamed across the portholes, and all things being considered, I preferred having the mumps. I had booked a stateroom for a trip to Trinidad, calling at various ports along the way, Vigo, Guadeloupe, Martinique, Puerto Rico, and Caracas. My wife, Myra, and two children, Jennifer and Andrew, we had two more later on, which proves that I can lie still in bed when I have to. We're thrilled at the prospect. 
The first couple of days were delightful. The food was excellent, which was to be expected on the French ship. The sea was calm, and I was beginning to recover my lost strength. Then came the storm. The first indication we had that the weather was going to be rough was when a large vase of flowers began to slide down the table in the middle of the lounge. I rescued it deftly. How's that? I cried to Andrew, who was five. He responded by throwing up all over nine-year-old Jennifer, who probably did the same thing to thirty-ish Myra. As we were cleaning up the mess, an announcement came over the tannoy calling everyone to boat drill. Now, I'd read about it in the instructions to passengers leaflet, which was in the cabin when we first came on board. The sirens would sound, and we had to follow the arrows to the boat station allotted to us. One member of the family would suffice, it said. It also stated rather firmly that life vests had to be worn. For some reason, I kept taking the wrong turning, and I eventually found myself in the crew's quarters. They ordered a good laugh and directed me back up the stairs in French. When I finally arrived at where I should have been, the group of passengers who would have had to share the lifeboat with me regarded my bulk with alarm. There were Gallic mutterings, until someone made the observation that if we were ever shipwrecked and forced to take to the boats, I could keep my companions in fresh meat for quite a while. We were all looking forward to our first landfall in the Caribbean. I, I was determined to be there on deck with my cameras to shoot Guadeloupe from every conceivable angle. Our stateroom was right on the sun deck. It was about half past five on a lovely morning when I heard the sounds of the ship's engine slowing. Without waking Myra and the children, I festooned myself with all my camera gear and eagerly threw open the heavy door. It flew back against the side of the ship when it seemed to encounter some object. I peered around the door and found that I was looking at a tall, thin man in a bathing costume holding his hands over his nose. Sorry, I said, stepping onto his bare feet. He gave a muffled yelp, and without saying anything more, limped off towards the swimming pool, which was further down the deck. I shouted apologies to his retreating back, receiving a huge shrug of his stringy shoulders in reply. Ah, oh, well, I thought, and started snapping away with gusto. That day, we went ashore eager to stretch our legs and had a fine time, until we lost Andrew in a cane field. After an anguished hour rushing around, we found him sitting with a bunch of little locals, chomping away on a piece of raw sugarcane. When we eventually got back on board, he had a violent attack of diarrhoea. Then Jennifer, who dined at a different time from Myra and myself, burst into tears and refused to go down to the dining room. We couldn't work out what was wrong, until through her sobs we realised that she was embarrassed because she didn't know how to say, pass the salt, in French. It took me half an hour with a French dictionary and a lot of pantomime to get her to go and eat her dinner. Mara and I had hours in the cabin. We were too bush to face the rigours of dressing up. The following morning, we were due to dock at six o'clock in Martinique, and so at a quarter to six, determined not to miss the opportunity of photographing our arrival, I got myself dressed, hung the cameras around my person, headed for the door, and flung it open. They say that lightning never strikes twice in the same place, but you've got to believe me when I say that I hit the same bloke again as I stepped out onto the deck. This time he appeared to have been hit on the side of the face, and he hopped around for quite a while uttering French exclamation marks and the odd oath. Pass the salt wasn't mentioned, but merde was. He was wearing a bathing suit, as he had done on the previous morning, and was evidently on his way for a pre-breakfast swim. 
I managed to stammer out my apologies without stepping on his feet, and he backed away, rubbing his cheek and shrugging his shoulders. Quite a tricky thing to do when you think about it. Martinique was colourful, to say the least, and Andrew managed to behave himself on the trip ashore, mainly because I'd threatened to throttle him if he didn't. In the evening, we were informed that the following night we would be dining at the captain's table. Hey, that's quite an honour, I said to Myra. By the way, which one is the captain? I looked around the dining room. I don't think he socialises much. Keeps himself to himself, I'm told. Myra, through her frequent visits to the hairdresser shop, had become quite an expert at what went on on board. That makes it all the more exclusive, then. Our dining with a captain, I said, swigging away at the red wine. I've got the sea in my blood. My great-grandfather was a master mariner, an old Cape Horner, killed by a belaying pin he was, I continued, repeating an old family myth. Myra studied me through hooded eyes. She reckoned I'd had enough wine. Nonsense, I said, pouring another glass for myself. An hour later, as I heaved over the toilet back in our stateroom, Myra remarked, not without compassion, You may have the sea in your blood, but that's claret that's coming up. The following morning, we put into San Juan, Puerto Rico, and in spite of my aching head, I gathered myself and my cameras together to photograph the arrival. Myra watched me from the bed. Don't get your nickens in a twist, she called as I opened the door. Very funny, I said over my shoulder, and promptly fell over my feet and sprawled on the deck. I heard a stifled laugh, and looked up to see the thin stranger in the bathing suit pressed against the side of the bulkhead. He was obviously waiting for me to make my entrance before he passed the door of my stateroom. Twice bitten, thrice shy. He stepped over me without so much as a bonjour and went on his way to the pool, shaking his head as he did so. Strangely enough, I couldn't think of anything to say. We went for lunch to the San Juan Hilton, which was a very palatial place indeed. Mara took Jennifer and Andrew up a magnificent marble staircase to the toilet, whilst I went to the bar and ordered a dakiri. I had two of them, and there was still no sign of the rest of the family. Then a pink toilet roll unfolded itself down the staircase. I watched, fascinated, as it was followed by Myra and a tearful Jennifer. There was no sign of Andrew. He's locked himself with the ladies and he won't come out, and he's throwing toilet rolls under the door. Myra was at the end of her tether, and Andrew was at the other end. You'll have to get him out. He'll only listen to you. I went up the stairs to the ladies and then came back down again. I can't go in there. It's the ladies. The two Dakiris had numbed my senses. Leave him in there. He'll come out when he's hungry. I was all for having lunch. But no, Myra wanted us all to sit down together. Back we all went up the marble stairs. Come out this instant, I shouted through the closed door, using my terrible voice. A large blonde lady came out in a rush, wild-eyed and unbuttoned. What's wrong? She seemed distraught. We were joined by more people who had been attracted to the scene by the laser-beam quality of my voice. Eventually, a huge, coloured housemaid appeared. She went into the toilet and emerged thirty seconds later with our recalcitrant son. How did you do it? I asked. Easy, she said. I just told him that if he didn't come out, I'd kill the little son of a bitch. From then on, we had no more trouble with Andy. We only had to threaten him with a lady from San Juan to get him to agree to anything. That night, we dressed for dinner, excited at the prospect of dining with the captain. I brushed up my schoolboy French with the aid of the dictionary, and Myra put on what I thought was a rather unnecessary amount of perfume. 
There were cocktails before dinner in a bar adjacent to the dining room, which was different from the one in which we normally ate. We were a bit late getting there because I took a wrong turning, and by the time we arrived, our fellow guests were moving in to the table. The purser stood ready to introduce us to the captain, this elusive man we had not yet glimpsed on the voyage. He had his back to us, and there was something horribly familiar about those shoulders, even in gold epaulets. Monsieur et Madame Sicombe, said the purser. The captain bent low over Myra's hand and straightened up to shake mine. His eyes opened wide in surprise. Vous, he exclaimed, touching his bruised cheek. Oui, me, I said, fatuously, hoping that the floor would open up and swallow me. We've met already, he said grimly to the purser, and excluded me from the conversation from then on. We flew home from Trinidad. It seemed the best thing to do under the circumstances. 